Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Diana E. Anderson, my guest, wrote a book. I think you should check it out. It's called In Transit, Being Non-Binary in a World of Dichotomies. As the title suggests, the book is an exploration of non-binary identity. It sort of decodes the usually very academic theory on that subject, breaks down how non-binary people fit in with other queer and trans communities and the world at large. It's also a bit of a memoir covering how Diana themselves came out as non-binary. Diana is a writer and former professor. They've written books about feminism and Christianity, and they came out as non-binary later in life. As people around them explored identities other than man and woman, Diana realized the non-binary label fit them better than either of those alternatives. Diana's normally based in Minneapolis. I was really grateful that they stopped by our L.A. studios to talk with us. Let's get into it. My interview with Diana E. Anderson. Diana, welcome to Bullseye. I am so happy to have you on the show. I am so happy to be here. So I I really enjoyed the book. I really got a lot out of it. I want to start with some real basics. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're nice (laughs) enough to throw a glossary in about 10 pages into the book. Yes. Um, so let's talk about a few terms that uh, some of our listeners might be familiar with, some might mm-hmm. not be. First of all, let's talk about what non-binary means. Um, and we can get into the depths of what non-binary means mm-hmm. later. <laughs> yeah. So there are three different terms when it comes to gender generally. There's cisgender, which means that your mental sense of your gender matches with what you were assigned at birth, with when the doctor pulled you out and said, it's a boy, and you grew up to be a boy. That's cisgender. Transgender is somebody who has transitioned away from their assigned gender at birth, um, and usually to being a man if they were a woman, uh, if they were assigned female, and the opposite way. And then non-binary is sort of the catch-all for everything in between, not a man, not a woman, somebody who doesn't feel they are part of that gender binary, where we have two separate boxes and never never the twain shall meet. Non-binary goes, hey, I'm going to pull them together and meet them or going to do my own other thing. And forgive me for asking you to explain things that are annoying Mm -hmm. to explain, but... um, (laughs) Tell me a little bit, for anyone who might be listening and might not know, what the relationship between gender identities and gender expressions, Mm -hmm. um, the things that we were just talking about, and um, sexual identities is. Yeah. Sexual identity is who you are attracted to, who you want to either be in romantic relationships with or um, sexual relationships with, and sometimes those can differ. Or it can be that you have none of that and you're aromantic or asexual, which is part of the queer community. Um, And gender identity is how you interact with gendered systems, how you um, develop your sense of self. The shorthand that some people use is sexual identity is who you go to bed with and gender identity is who you go to bed as, which I think is a neat little term. 
Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about you and your life. As a person who has uh, occasionally received uh, less than friendly communications from um, what they call TERFs on uh, on the internet, I was surprised and delighted to read you <laughs> beginning the personal narrative in this book with a story about uh, being a girl or having presuming yourself to be a girl and climbing trees. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, this is like the classic example that people who uh, 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 that a certain certain groups of people who are opposed to transgender identities um, uh, bring up. What was your experience as someone who thought of herself as a girl and climbed trees as a kid? <laughs> Yeah, I uh, say in the book that like when I heard what the term tomboy meant, I was like, that's me. That's it. Um, And I realized as I've grown up, as I've looked back on childhood, a lot of my interaction with my gender was me trying to figure out what rules I could follow to correctly perform it for people. And I saw myself as a girl because that's what was available to me, I didn't have any other language. And by the time that language came around, I was so deeply invested in the gender system that I couldn't imagine myself as anything else. And it took a lot of unlearning and unpacking to undo that. Um, But I start with the tree example because I think it's a good example of how I saw myself not as a necessarily gendered being in a lot of ways, but how I had those rules put upon me. My mom would dress me up nicely for church, and then right after, I'd go climb the tree and scuff my shoes. Um, And a lot of trans people reach for those sorts of metaphors. A lot of trans and non-binary people need those sorts of metaphors because we don't have the language necessarily to describe the incongruence that we feel with what we've been told we are and how we act or how we see ourselves. And so these metaphors of, oh, I was a person who climbed trees all the time. I was a girl who didn't like girly things um, are the closest things that we have to communicate that language to others because we're fundamentally trying to communicate an internal experience to somebody who's not experiencing that. Did you know queer people when you were a teenager or young adult? We had one gay kid in my high school that I knew of, um, and he had bright pink hair, and I did not realize he was gay until somebody told me. It was Sioux Falls, South Dakota. There's not it's, – it's a very small population, and there weren't a lot of out queer kids for good reason um, because South Dakota is a very conservative area, very – it's, it's sort of like the Northern Bible Belt in a lot of ways. So it's something where queerness wasn't a thing I was exposed to, or if I was exposed to it, it was in negative terms. And so it took me a very long time to come about to realizing that that category included me. To what extent was queerness something that you were you know, explicitly warned against or or that was, you know, addressed directly by people around you in negative ways? And to what extent was it just something that was invisible to you because you, you know, just didn't know people who were out? It was very much cast negatively. Um, I was, you know, late 90s, Will and Grace was one of the most popular shows on TV. And 
my aunt and uncle, I remember I was visiting them and an episode of Will and Grace was on and they were like, oh, those gay people, like making negative comments about them, never like using slurs because they were people who didn't use that language, but the tone was still very much that sort of language. And while my parents didn't talk about gay people in that way, I do remember the first time I heard about gay people existing was when my aunt uh, divorced my uncle because she came out. She was engaged in an affair with a woman and the entire family shunned her. I never saw her um, after that divorce. And that was my experience was like coming out as queer meant your entire family will, will abandon you. How old were you when that happened? I want to say nine or 10. So that's yeah. a really impressionable mm -hmm. age. That's an age where both you're very impressionable and you don't necessarily have the agency within yourself to yeah. question whether that's yep. right or normal or okay. Yeah. At that age, you're like, well, that's how the world works. So. What was the first time you set foot in a world? And I mean, like, physically, mm -hmm. what was the first place you were in where you saw a lot of expressions of gender and sexuality that you had not had the opportunity to see? The first time that ever happened was probably in Oxford. In 2015, I went to Oxford to do a degree in women's studies. And having grown up in South Dakota, having uh, lived in small towns, I didn't have a lot of queer people around me all that much. And so... By this time, did you yeah. think of yourself as queer? Yes. Yeah. I was out as a queer person by then. And as a liberal, I was going to get a degree in women's studies. Um, and so... And being able to see all the different manifestations of queerness and actually like attend a pride gathering for the first time in my life was really revelatory to see all these different people who were just unabashedly themselves and lived in a place where they could be. Uh, that was really revelatory for me. 2015 is pretty late, Diana. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was 29. <laughs> so yeah. We laugh from discomfort. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because I grew up in South Dakota and that wasn't a thing I was exposed to. We have so much more to get into. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Diana E. Anderson. They're a writer based out of Minneapolis and the author of a brand new book, In Transit, being non-binary in a world of dichotomies. It's an exploration of non-binary identity and a telling of their own story of coming out as non-binary. Let's get back into our interview. Did you think of yourself as, you know, as a butch lesbian or as mm -hmm. a mask lesbian? Yes, very much as a butch uh, person. I played around with femininity some as I tried to figure out my role within the queer community. But by the time like I settled in Minneapolis after Oxford, I moved to Minneapolis um, and stuff, I was pretty firmly like, I am butch. I am in this camp. And then I started meeting more trans people. I dated a trans woman for a long time and um, realized that maybe my gender is a bit more complicated than I thought it was. What first led you into um, 
sort of naming who you were in that mm -hmm. category, in that category as a, as a butch lesbian or, um, you know, as a masculine woman rather than as non-binary. I felt queerness very strongly. Like once I had admitted to myself that, that that was part of me, I wanted to put myself into a category that was well-defined, that was uh, easily explainable, and that had an aesthetic that I identified with because there were different like gender aesthetics and different gender categories. And butch was one that I felt really was cool and fit and was something I was very comfortable in. And the line between butch and trans mask or non-binary is very blurry um, and always has been within the lesbian community. And so I think I had started to feel that pull towards that, started to recognize that within myself, and then um, sat in butchness for a while uh, before finally coming out. What was your relationship to womanhood at the time? I mean, I imagine that as as a lesbian, mm -hmm. as a women's studies studier, mm -hmm. like there's a there's a lot of cultural baggage there associated with, you know, women and women's liberation being driven by women. So if you're not going to be a woman, it can be a trickier. Yeah, I part of my journey over the last five, six years was me recognizing that I was using the label of woman more as a tool to put myself into that group than I was for any actual descriptive purpose for me. Um, I didn't feel much connection to it. I didn't feel the need to feel a connection to it. Um, and so woman was, for me, functionally a political label for a very long time. Um, I saw it as solidarity with, um, with trans women and with cis women and with the reproductive justice movement and all that to identify myself that way. And that all came to a head during the pandemic when I realized that womanhood wasn't the right term for me anymore. It wasn't something that I necessarily experienced. If there was this thing called woman, I didn't know what it was. And I realized using it as a political label wasn't all that useful anymore either. I think you're putting your finger on something that can be difficult to understand for people like me who have never had to question their gender identity or expression, uh, expression a little bit, but yeah. like uh, <laughs> mostly just as a fancy lad. Um, <laughs> uh, but like, you know, it, I was born, I, I was born cis, you know, I'm a mm -hmm. cis dude. So I, I never had to interrogate it particularly much, but there is an important communicative aspect to our uh, performance or displays mm -hmm. of gender. And there is an important kind of self-descriptive mm -hmm. aspect, and those are a little different. Um, so can you pick those sort of, uh, pick those little tributaries apart for me a little? Yeah, we hear about gender as performance a lot. Um, and that idea comes from Judith Butler, who is themselves non-binary uh, and came out came out kind of about it during the pandemic. A lot of it is that we consistently perform these categories, these social genres of cultural constructs, whatever that is, depending on which culture you're in. 
And so that is very roughly women wearing skirts and makeup and high heels performing that femininity or men wearing suits and ties and things like that. And that is the performative part of it, where we perform all these little actions throughout the day that reinforce and reinscribe gender. And that doesn't mean that it's fake. That doesn't mean that it is not a real thing, but it is something where we have learned each day, this is how I am doing this. And very, very often for cis people, it's unconscious. It's something where, well, I'm a man, so I'm doing it this way. And so that is sort of the way in which we are communicating our performance, our outward expression to others. And then there's the internal self-identity of how we view ourselves. Um, And that is intertwined. We can decide to change our performances to match our internal identity or just to uh, ignore the performance altogether. And I've experienced that a lot with myself with deciding to present more masks, to deliberately move my gender presentation from just sort of a butch person to deliberately transmasculine, deliberately shopping in the men's section and deliberately presenting myself with suits and ties and buttons up, button up in order to evoke that uh, performance in other people as well. And there are two pieces to that, right? Mm -hmm. One is uh, trying to reflect Mm -hmm. who you are within yourself. One is trying to communicate who you are to others. I mean, you mentioned Mm -hmm. how, you know, identifying as a butch lesbian was a category where we were like, well, I like the aesthetics of this Mm -hmm. in an aesthetic sense. So, and it's, easy to read for people, like people get what mm-hmm. that is around me, whereas presenting yourself as non-binary is a, you know, it's a trickier sentence to make understood. Yeah. There's so much explanation that has to come with uh, being non-binary and telling people that you're non-binary because we don't have that cultural language yet. And I'm hoping we do eventually. But for a lot of people, especially cis people, their image, when they think of non-binary, they think of androgynous. They think of David Bowie. They think of Prince. Uh, And that image is always somebody who is thin, very often white, um, and very often masculine of center, um, who plays with femininity. So that makes it very hard for non-binary people who are assigned male to present androgyny uh, in ways that make sense for them, that are fun and playful at the same time. And it ends up being our identities coming up in clashing with this cultural image of what we are. And I am, um, this is a radio interview, so you can't see it, but I'm I'm a uh, fat person. And existing as a fat person in a non-binary space when fat is so immediately gendering in a lot of ways, is very tough because there's not, you've got this cultural layer of fat phobia and anti-trans-ness uh, that makes it very hard to present as the gender I want to and not have that be met with aggression. So when you say that uh, fat is sort of inherently mm-hmm. gendering, what you mean is that maybe is that is that when someone is very thin, um, it can be difficult to read their body as gendered 
uh, simply because if they were, you know, if they were assigned female, they might have very small breasts mm-hmm. um, and narrow hips. If they're if they were assigned male, they might not have broad shoulders or other things that are. Whereas uh, when uh, women gain weight, they tend to gain more weight on the hips and in the breasts. Mm-hmm. Um, men tend tend to gain it more in their middle. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah, and we as a society despise fatness in a in so many different ways. Um, and we one of the ways we punish fat people is by denying them their gender. Fat women very often have to perform femininity to a point of almost caricature where you get like these pinup. Uh, um, and that is a completely valid form of femininity. But I do wonder like what that would look like if there wasn't this pressure because of fat phobia. And so because our cultural images of non-binary are so closely tied to androgyny that is white, male, thin, um, fat non-binary people have trouble finding a place. You describe really eloquently in the book the feeling that you had learning to use binders, um, Mm -hmm. which are, you know, physical tools similar to like a corset or something like that, that physically restrict the breasts, typically compress them, make them appear smaller. To the extent that you're comfortable describing (laughs) stuff you did to your breasts. Yeah. um, What was your, uh, what was your sort of process and experience of of using them? I, I wanted to wear button ups. And I had fairly large breasts and I could never, whenever you bought button-ups, there would be the boob gap where they couldn't quite close and it would always look weird. And so I experimented with like putting my tie over it and just clipping it there so it would cover it and stuff. And then eventually when I came out as non-binary, I was like, maybe I could buy a binder and try that out. And I did. And the first time I looked down and saw what looked like me. It was a flatter chest. It was um, something that looked more like a fat man rather than a woman. And I felt euphoria over that. And that's the it, you, gender euphoria is the opposite of dysphoria, where your gendered body gives you feelings of pain or um, psychic trauma. Uh, gender euphoria, you look at it and you go, oh, that's me. This is finally what I look like. And I was using binders for a while and then decided I need to make this permanent. And so I pursued top surgery and got it this last April. And I... And top surgery is essentially breast removal. Yes. It's a double mastectomy. And I luckily had it fully covered by my insurance, which was fantastic. And I remember the week after just looking down and being like, this is me now. This is what I look like now. And it's had a very profound effect on my mental health because I have for years suffered from anxiety and depression and um, struggled with that. And since getting top surgery, I have taken my as-needed anti-anxiety meds all at once uh, in two months, which is wild for me. And it's something that has improved my life so much that I feel like I feel like a, a like religious convert of like this is something that helps people you need to be able to access this if it's something that you want because it 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 just feels great to be me 
I really appreciated the part of your description of of using binders where you described figuring out that you could kind of like mush your breasts mm-hmm. down into your tummy and then that would make like a that would make like a flat thing. Yes. <laughs> like yeah. the, the geometry and geography of of squishing your boobs against your chest. Uh, I, I yeah. was I was so thrilled with the idea that you like found a way to fit it together that seemed right. Yeah, there are there are entire forums online of trans mask people talking about like how to make the binder look right and to give you the impression that that you want. Now, I think there are people out there who might be thinking in their own internal monologues. Well, you're just matching other people's expectations of your gender and and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. So. To what extent is that true and to what extent does that matter? I I don't feel like I'm matching anybody's expectations, at least not anymore. It's hard to describe, but I'll use this metaphor. A few weeks ago, my brother and sister-in-law visited me up in Minneapolis and their hotel has a pool. And so I got to go swimming topless for the first time ever in my life. And it's very obvious that I have scars there. I have very obviously done something to remove my chest. And I don't feel like that is meeting anybody's expectation. That is just me be allowing myself to be me. Um, and whatever expectations other people have for me no longer matter for how I want to present myself. Um, and that has really made all the difference in who I am as a person, because I'm no longer trying to meet the expectations of what I thought my gender was supposed to be. And now I can just sort of create it myself. I've read a couple of articles in, let's say, major mainstream publications. The one I'm thinking of was in the New York Times a few days ago, um, but also elsewhere, Mm -hmm. that seek to answer the question. They're often well-written and Mm -hmm. well-sourced, not always, but uh, often, but they they seek to answer the question: Why are there more trans people now than before, or why are there more trans children, or why are there more mm-hmm. trans children and teenagers now than before? So, my first question, and it's the one that I don't always see asked in those articles or certainly not asked in in the lead graph is are there more trans and non-binary people children teens Mm -hmm. now than there were five years ago 10 years ago 20 years ago you can't see it in the radio but i immediately started shaking my head uh because they're not uh they're just out you just know about them for centuries trans people who knew they were trans, who uh, knew that they were different, had to hide it. And so, yeah, there have always been trans people around. We've just had to hide because when we were our, our authentic selves, we were met with violence and aggression and were eliminated from society. And that's part of our past. There aren't more trans people. We're just more visible and we're more out and we are finding our political voice in a way that we haven't been able to for a century. I have a transgender daughter. And mm-hmm. when I hear from 
transphobic people on the internet, they often suggest that my wife or mother and I um, drove our daughter to this or mm -hmm. encouraged this in our daughter, pushed this in our daughter. And what I often hear from trans, adult trans people when they talk to us about having had this experience was, is they understand so deeply that like, the area where, as far as I'm concerned, we just got lucky with our cultural context, but like mm -hmm. the the special thing that happened that allowed our daughter to be trans was was not that we pushed her towards it because goodness knows we didn't. It's it's mm -hmm. it's hard and unpleasant in America in 2022 to be trans, but um, uh, but rather that like we were able to describe different ways of being in the world so that she was able to describe mm -hmm. herself, um, pick the one that was right for her. And I hear from so many people who had to wait until they were mm -hmm. 20 or 30 or 50 mm -hmm. to be able to see those, to see those other kind of opportunities. Yeah. Uh, the idea that parents can trans their kids or make them queer or trans or anything is is kind of laughable because if parents or teachers could do that, classroom management wouldn't be a problem, like behavioral things wouldn't be a problem, and lots of trans people wouldn't exist. Be good at baseball. Yes. <laughs> Like I can, I can, I I can't get. I you can't to... even get my kids to like baseball, <laughs> much less be good at it. I would accept liking it and being barely passable at it. That's the standard <laughs> I set as a child. Yeah, like if if I had been the if my parents had been able to make me who they wanted me to be, I would have been like a track star athlete who is a very good Christian woman, and that is not who I turned out to be. And I just have to sit back and ask those people, like, what do you think the role of parents is? Because if it is to make copies of the people, the, of the parents, that's not a good role for you to be. <laughs> you shouldn't be having kids at that point. And I'm saying that as a childless uh, person. Um, and with the understood yeah. exception of making them like baseball. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's important. <laughs> We've got to have more kids to like baseball. That is the American pastime. Yeah. Um, and so, so kids will be who they are and they know who they are. My two nieces could not be any more different as people. Uh, one of them is, I'm sorry to say, an anxious mess. She overthinks everything. She worries about all this and she's extremely mu musical. The other one will, when told to clean her room, decide she's going to pretend to be a cat and pick things up with her mouth and put them away that way um, and has like no worries whatsoever. And just within that family with the same parents, with two straight parents and one queer non-binary aunt-uncle person, um, those kids know who they are. They know what they want to be and they have the freedom to express that. And there's nothing that my brother or sister-in-law could do to make them be any different from who they are at their core. When you decided to come out as non-binary and get top surgery and, you know, 
shave the sides of your head and dye the top blue. You're sitting across <laughs> from me right now. Um, did you feel that you had to consider your safety physically or legally? Yeah, I I am very lucky to live in Minnesota, which has had protections for trans people. Minneapolis itself has had protections for trans people since 1975. So I feel very safe where I am. But when I go back home to South Dakota, I am very careful with where I go and what I do and who I talk to and how much of myself I reveal. I went back to South Dakota just this past weekend for uh, Vermilion's Pride. Uh, Vermilion is probably one of the most liberal cities. It's a college town. And it was astounding to me to see like so many happy queers in South Dakota. It's not something you get very often because very often you hear about the state legislature being kind of terrible toward trans people. And so to see trans people thriving in South Dakota was very good. But it is not a place that I necessarily feel safe anymore. So that's why I ended up moving to Minnesota, which is like so many other queer people before me. That's how so many cities end up with uh, huge LGBT populations because it's not safe for us in other areas. Is it safe for you in terms of the state and in terms of legal and civic things, mm -hmm. marriages, property, jobs, uh, trying to buy birthday cakes, uh, yeah. wh whatever those um, kind of non-physical categories are? Yeah, it's because Minnesota thanks to LGBT pioneers within the state, um, particularly a man named Jack Baker, who was a cis gay man who liked to do drag. Uh, and did a, He was the president of the U of M's law school uh, in the 1970s. And he did a ton of work with the city council in Minneapolis and with the Minnesota legislature to codify protections for LGBT Minnesotans, not just gay, uh, and cis, but also trans. And the original like city ordinance for Minneapolis was so broad that it protected uh, cis women as well, because it was about presenting in a manner of dress or style that is incongruent with your perceived sex at birth, uh, which is really broad language. And it protects like butch women as well as the trans woman. And that for me is very meaningful to have a state that has set out for decades now protections for people like me. It's still not great. There's still a lot of work that we have to do. Uh, Cece McDonald, the famous um, black trans woman who had killed a man in self-defense uh, that happened in Minneapolis, um, and she was housed in a state's men's prison. Uh, Laverne Cox did a documentary about her. Um, and so, so there's still a lot of work to do, but as opposed to my home state of South Dakota, it feels like the work that I'm doing in Minnesota is going somewhere. Like there's, there's receptive people within, especially the city council of Minneapolis and within the state legislature for my community, which is not the case in a lot of red states. More to get into with Diana E. Anderson after the break. When we return, we'll talk about what cis people people like me 
who identify with the sex they were assigned at birth can do to be better allies to non-binary people. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. My guest is writer Diana E. Anderson. Let's get back into our interview. I think for a lot of people, especially people who um, whose ideas of how the world works were largely settled 15, 20, 30, mm-hmm. or 40 years ago, uh, all this stuff is a lot. They're really trying to figure it out. So my first question is, if there's somebody listening right now, and they're 50 or 70 years old, and they're not against it, they're mm-hmm. generally for it, but uh, it's it's a lot for them to understand. What do you think you would like to communicate with them on the most basic level? Like, what what can you offer them that they can chew on for a while? I think my first thing would be to be patient and be curious. One thing that that I, as a gender studies uh, person who at some points thinks I know everything, I will be confronted with a new concept uh, that I haven't heard about before. And rather than going with, as humans, when we when we are presented with new things, we have a naturally conservative reaction of wanting to um, like to say no um, immediately. Um, that sounds weird. That's different from how I've ever done it. But if we commit to keeping an open mind and saying, huh, I don't understand that. Can you explain it to me? That will go a very long way toward uh, building bridges and toward understanding um, not only other people, but understanding yourself a bit more. Uh, because I believe that cis people could learn a lot from trans people in terms of just thinking about how gender works in the world. And so maintaining an open and curious mind toward that and not try and deliberately working not to shut yourself off from other options is very important for approaching any social issue. There's a lot of work to be done to alter and dismantle the many cultural, legal, uh, Mm -hmm. and other structures that that cause uh, people disproportionate amounts of pain in this country and in the world, right? A ton of different work. Mm -hmm. For folks out there who are listening who are cis, what's an example of a chunk of work they could do uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that might seem manageable given that they have to pick up the kids or get to class or whatever. I My first thing that I tell cis people when they ask how to be better allies for trans people is to think about their own gender, to think about how it functions for them in the world. And that will help give you a little bit better understanding of how trans people have to navigate. Um, think about like if you woke up one morning and Every, everybody read you as a man if you're a cis woman. Uh, how would that change how you function within the world? And that often is a thought exercise that teaches cis people a little bit about gender dysphoria, but it also teaches them about the way the world is structured and helps them see those gaps 
where it is structured in a way that is actively hostile to trans people. Um, and once you see those gaps, you can start advocating for those. Uh, don't make trans people do our own fights all the time. Um, one of the ways that you can speak up is speaking up in legislatures, uh, testifying on behalf of how um, the, on behalf of, of trans people, not speaking for us, but speaking with us. And one thing that really helps with pro-trans measures like uh, promoting gender neutral bathrooms and things like that is doing cultural education among your peers, teaching them about what the necessities are and what those um, what people are going through. And that sort of word of mouth uh, stuff can help change minds much better than an ad or a, or a TV commercial or whatever. I have an aunt, my mom's sister, who is a lesbian and, you know, came out before I can remember. And I was born in 1981 mm -hmm. and has spent her life, as you would expect, a baby boomer lesbian or a pre-baby boomer, actually, in her case, lesbian, dealing with her sexuality and gender, like engaging with it very actively, moving to the Bay Area, spelling women with a Y sometimes, mm -hmm. Uh, making me an honorary girl at one point. <laughs> I think that when my daughter came out, which was now five or six years ago, I had this brief moment of thinking, well, gosh, what is Gail going to think about this? You know, her understanding of these things is she's old. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, Gail. Uh, she's very vibrant. She's very vibrant. Um, as anyone in our office who has ever met her and the many husky dogs that go with her wherever she goes <laughs> can attest. But like I thought, well, gosh, you know, Gail is Gail's ideas about this were developed a long time ago, and they were really about protecting her place in the world as mm -hmm. a woman. And I thought, what what is she going to make of of my daughter being a girl? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most touching things in my life and my family was how immediately readily she understood the common cause between her and my daughter as queer people, as people who were born different from others, who had to do extra work to define themselves in the world. And that has been my experience substantially with feminists mm -hmm. <laughs> and with feminist lesbians, mm -hmm. uh, both, that um, the common cause of understanding what it is to be different and to have to do extra work to keep yourself safe, to gain prosperity and happiness and success in the structures of our world uh, is almost always much stronger. So I hate the prospect of someone mm -hmm. defining feminism in terms of in terms of picking on someone. Yeah, in terms of hating on a specific gender for just being that gender. Um and I think that leans into the caricature of feminism that we get all the time the um when I was at Baylor I taught freshman English while I was there. And at one point I asked this class of 18-year-old freshman evangelical <laughs> Baptist kids to define feminism. 
And so many of them came up with hairy, lesbian, man-hating, all these things. And lesbian was a slur to them. And that, to me, has never been feminism. Feminism isn't about equality between the sexes or whatever. It's about making sure that the world is not a harder place to live just because of your gender or that because of who who or how the circumstances of your birth shouldn't dictate who you grow up to be in such a way that it limits your opportunities, limits your access to the healthcare that you need, to the opportunities you have in jobs, or to the life that you want to lead. And that, to me, is a much more hopeful and better vision than feminism being about smashing the patriarchy of men and and eliminating male violence and casting all of this as a men versus women thing. No, I'm not against smashing some patriarchy I mean, and yeah, eliminating but... some male violence. We have an excess of it. There's yes. no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I mean, by that, I mean like categorizing violence as a male thing sure. rather than um, as a thing that is bad for everybody. <laughs> I mean, it's been bad for me in my life, yeah. so I, I promise you. Well, Diana, I I sure appreciate you taking the time, and um, thanks for this. Thanks for this wonderful book. And as a as a former culture studies major, congratulations on the clarity you brought to the theory in this book, because uh, there is a lot of very clearly described theory. <laughs> Good. (laughs) When I read it in college, I really struggled to wrap my head around. So uh, thank you much, Diana. Thanks for taking the time. If I made it easier to understand Butler, then hey. (laughs) (laughs) That's the W you're looking for. (laughs) Diana E. Anderson. Their book, In Transit, Being Non-Binary in a World of Dichotomies, is moving and fascinating, really wonderfully written. It gets into some deep and complicated ideas in impressively clear ways. I really liked it. Go check it out. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, my son Oscar just got eight fish, and four of them are named Greg. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme music is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to The Go Team for sharing it with us, along with their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there. Give us a follow. We'll share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.